The current war in Ukraine has served to bring into focus some truths about human nature. One of the most evident is the extent to which human beings are capable of committing brutality against their fellow creatures. This is often called man's inhumanity to man. This is nothing new. What is new is the omnipresent video camera recording events in living or dying color, then disseminating these images in real time all around the world. This war is no more brutal than war has ever been in the course of human history. But technologies brought us into the event, reducing our distance from the atrocities, the heightened immediacy increasing the impact on our emotions. Then there's the added effect of the progress, quote-unquote, made in the development of new weaponry. History records inexorable advance in armament, the fruit of human ingenuity placed at the service of how best to harm others as conveniently and effectively as possible. Mankind has progressed from slinging sticks and stones to firing guided missiles over the horizon and creating the scenes we see on television. Greater in scale, true, but indicative of the same underlying driving force. The arm that swung the sword and threw the spear was guided by the same intention of mind and heart that caused the finger to pull the trigger of machine guns and flip the switch that launches missiles and drops bombs. Weapons have always been under the control of human beings, and those impulses have not changed since Cain killed Abel. When we read history, if we could look beyond the mere words on the page and put ourselves in the place of those whose experiences are described, we would be as shocked as we are now by what we see. But time and printed words create a buffer that softens the impact of the reality. We can't really put ourselves in the place of those people. And if we're honest, we'll admit that even watching those scenes in real time from the comfort of our home prevents us from truly experiencing the fear, the pain, the loss. We don't shiver in the cold. We don't actually feel their hunger pangs. Not that we should feel guilty for not experiencing the depth of the suffering of those under attack. It's simply not possible for us to experience it in the same way, unless and until it happens to us. But these are truths we all can readily accept, and we know there's suffering all around us that we cannot fully experience personally. But I see another aspect of our human nature revealed in subtle ways over the past couple of months. I sensed it in statements made even before Russia invaded Ukraine. As Russian troops kept building up along the northern and eastern borders of Ukraine, there was a lot of speculation about what Putin's real intentions were and what the West's response would be. In the end, the question was what the U.S. would do, as we're seen to be the leader of the free world. I mention the following two instances only to illustrate a general truth about all of us. All of us as human beings, regardless of race, nationality, creed, or political leanings. I leave the assessment of political implications to the pundits and political commentators who have been dissecting the possible historical consequences and who will probably continue to do so for some time. The first of these doesn't seem to have made a big splash in the news media, but it caught my attention. Early on, some wondered, and perhaps still do, whether Ukraine is worth the involvement of the U.S. and its troops. From Vietnam to Afghanistan, examples of recent history are constantly brought up in the debate on the wisdom of committing troops to 
a, quote, lost cause or no cause at all. One of the factors of the argument had to do with the size of Ukraine in terms of its geography, population, and economy. After all, some would ask, is Ukraine really that important to us? Maybe we should just let Putin take it over. And I seem to remember someone commenting, well, if it were Estonia or Lithuania, which are really small, the decision would be a lot easier. Then, in the second case, there were the two little words that were heard round the world. Minor incursion. Back on January 20th, a month before Russia's invasion, in response to a question about what the U.S. position would be if Russia should actually attack Ukraine, President Biden responded that the U.S. would respond appropriately according to the circumstances and indicated that the U.S. might tolerate an incursion into Ukraine if it were minor. That, of course, unleashed a torrent of articles and speeches about what he meant by a minor incursion. Those two words were interpreted as giving Putin a green light to make his move. Where was the line between a minor and a more than minor incursion? Who was going to decide where that line was and if it had been crossed? Of course, that all became a moot question a few weeks later. Now, these two situations reminded me of a story we find in Genesis chapter 19. Nearly everyone knows something about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, if nothing more than it's about fire and brimstone raining down on two cities known for a specific type of sexual behavior. That's a hot-button issue in our culture today, but it's not why I mention it now. There are a lot of lessons to be gleaned from the whole story, but I want to focus on Lot's actions and his reactions to God's instructions. Recapping briefly, God told Abraham he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities of the plain. But Abraham's nephew, Lot, had moved from the mountains to the plains and was living in Sodom with his wife and two daughters, both of whom had chosen to marry men of the city. God promised Abraham he would spare Lot and his family, and so he sent two angels to warn them to flee the city before it was destroyed. When Lot told his sons-in-law about this warning, they thought he was joking. Here's the biblical account of the story, Genesis 19, verses 14 through 22. Then the angel said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on. Get up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. Then they brought them out and left them outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. 
Look, this town is close enough for me to run to. It's a small place. Please let me go there. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, All right, I'll grant your request about this matter too and will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up. Run there, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky the Lord rained burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. Reading Genesis 19, 12-25 At this dire warning, the sons-in-law mocked, and Lot hesitated. Get out of town with your wife and daughters, the angels told Lot. But he hesitated. So the angels had to grab the hands of Lot and his family and escort them outside the city. Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you'll be swept away. It wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that were being judged. It was all the inhabitants of the plains. And Lot was told to head for the hills. But Lot, who had dragged his feet in getting out of Sodom, now balks completely. No, my lords. First, he says, he can't do what God was telling him to do. I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me. Other translations follow the original more closely and say, I can't go to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me. In other words, Lord, what you're asking me to do is dangerous. Now, let's pause and think about that for a moment. So, God is, quote-unquote, going to all the trouble to get Lot out of Sodom to save him, and then he slips up and zaps him while he's still out on the plains in the open. Or he lets a bear or lion or highway robber finish him off in the mountains. Think that through. There's some faulty logic there. So Lot negotiates with God. In verse 20, Couldn't I just go to this town? It's close enough. I can make it that far. Besides, it's a little town. It's only a small place, isn't it? He said. Is it not a little one? After all, God, you're destroying all the big cities, and this is only a little one. Surely you can spare just this one. After all, it's small. And God granted Lot's request. Only after Lot and his daughters were safe inside the city did the fire and brimstone fall on all the cities of the plain. The text explains why the city was called Zoar, because that's what Lot called it, Zoar, which means small, insignificant place. But isn't this the way we react to God's commands? Now, most people will be like the sons-in-law, who think all this talk about a righteous God who actually punishes sin is just a joke. Men scoffed in the days of Noah until the flood came and swept them away. They scoffed in Lot's day until it was too late. But this message is for those of us who have a sense of God in his presence. We may react like Lot. We hesitate. We drag our feet. We say, okay, God, I'll do it. But then we take our time getting around to actually obeying. Then we negotiate. We know what God has in mind, but we wouldn't want to be fanatical. Surely there's a margin we can play with. There must be an easier option. 
After all, God will understand, won't he? He's a loving God. And my pet sin is a little one. After all, it's insignificant, really. It's Zoar. I surely don't have to go all the way to the mountain to give that sin up, too. It's not like I'm doing the really awful stuff, the evil things I see other people doing. In short, we try to get out of taking up our cross daily, as Jesus said his disciples must do. Now, coming back to Ukraine, or rather to the discussions about what to do, the two positions I referred to in the beginning that reveal our tendency to judge the difference between right and wrong based on the questions, how much, how big, how significant, how important? Is Ukraine important enough that we should do something to stop an aggression by Russia? Since Lithuania is so small, an invasion of that country could be overlooked, perhaps. In the case of Ukraine, a bigger country, we perhaps could accept an incursion of, well, 20 kilometers or, or 50, as long as it's a, a Zoar incursion, a minor one, a little one. Where do we draw the line on right and wrong? Wouldn't one meter inside the border already be an incursion? Well, that would only be a little one, is, wouldn't it? And that's the problem about leaving the decision of what is right and what is wrong up to each of us. What constitutes a minor infraction and what is a more than minor one? You know the saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And that principle has been applied to questions of morality and ethics. Right and wrong are in the eye of the beholder. Truth is elastic, subjective, and flexible. Unlike the settings are our computer, where each user has the right to configure the settings, we set truth and error according to our own personal preferences. There's the issue of abortion. Is abortion only wrong after the fetus is X number of days or months old? Well, the problem is in deciding the value of X in that equation. Perhaps if it's a minor abortion, quote-unquote, we could accept that. What about murder? We hear all the news coverage of mass murders. Does that mean we can classify them into major and minor murders? The FBI defines mass murder as murdering four or more people during an event with no cooling off period between the murders. So if I only kill three people, that's not mass murder. Uh, those are minor murders. Uh, a Zoar murder, so to speak. Now, God did say to Israel, thou shalt not kill. In other words, thou shalt not murder, because engaging in war for self-defense is not in view here, obviously. But in the law given to Moses, God recognizes that not all killings are alike. Obviously, the victim killed accidentally by another person unintentionally is no less dead than the one who was targeted by a premeditated act. They were both killed they're both dead. But God made provision for the perpetrator of an unintentional death who could seek refuge and be spared the death penalty. He would have to stay inside that city of refuge for the rest of his life, so he would always bear a consequence of his action, but to a different degree. But that's not the issue here. The point here is that we're bargaining with God just to see how far we can stray from what he has said is wrong. 
we see how close we can get to the edge of the abyss without falling over the cliff. No open fires around gasoline, says the sign at the gas pump. But Lord, it's only a spark. A cigarette butt, it's not like I'm striking a match. It's not an open flame. It's only a little one, is it not? Surely there's no harm in a little spark. It's not even a big spark. Now what do you think is going to happen with just a spark? We need to read a bit further on in the text before we close. Later on in that chapter 19 and verse 30, it says, Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. So Zoar wasn't so safe after all. Lot should have done what God told him to do in the first place. He who dragged his feet and had to be escorted out of Sodom by angels was afraid he couldn't get to the mountains safely and in time. I can't escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me. Bears, lions, robbers? Zoar would be safe. Until it wasn't. The safest place for us to be is where God tells us to go. For the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel, the safest place for them was in the fiery furnace. For Daniel later, it was in the lion's den. If God shows us something is wrong, let's not negotiate with him. But how do we know what is right or wrong? That's what the Bible's all about. It reveals the holiness of God, which is the exact opposite of sin. If we classify sin on a sliding scale, where an action is only sin, if it registers a certain level on our gauge, then the same must apply on the opposite side of the equation. According to that thinking, as long as the gauge for God's holiness and purity doesn't fall below a certain threshold, we can still think of Him as holy. That cannot be right. There is no sliding scale for purity. Goal that is 99.9999% pure is not pure. It's not pure gold. The lesson is this. No matter how little or insignificant we think our sin is, it is still sin. It cannot stand in the presence of a holy God, and it must be punished. That's precisely why Jesus died on the cross, to take away our sin. It's up to us to admit our sin and trust in God's offer of forgiveness. Negotiating our way out of the problem won't work. Or to put it another way, no matter how small a rattlesnake is, it's still 100% rattlesnake through and through.